I'm a language. There are five questions today, um, two on things related sort of directly to last week and three on something else, which we'll see in a moment. The first is this. What is God's robe of vengeance in Isaiah 59, 17? Well, I don't think this person just plucked this question out of thin air. Isaiah 59, 17 is one of those bits in the Old Testament that we flicked to as we were trying to understand what was happening in Ephesians chapter 6. And we got to Ephesians chapter 6 and we saw that in Isaiah 59, it mentioned the armour of righteousness and the helmet of salvation. And so clearly there's a line to be drawn between the Old Testament, what was looking forward to God's rescue, and then in Ephesians 6, which was sort of looking back on God's rescue in Jesus. But this question says, well, what about the other bits that were there in Isaiah 59? For example, the robe of vengeance. And also there's, there's the cloak of divine passion. Uh, do we put those things on as well as we put on the armour of God, the robe of vengeance? Well, uh, we didn't have a robe of vengeance last week, partly, mainly because we don't need to use it. That bit's already been used. Because when Jesus died, he took the armour of God, he wore it, and he defeated the devil. And when he rose in victory, it meant that the devil, even though he likes to mouth off, he is no longer able to, um, to bring us down in the same way he did before. He was, destroyed. He, was, um, he was defeated in that way. And so the other thing that's worth noting is that the, the robe of vengeance and cloak of divine passion, Jesus actually himself took upon himself... The vengeance of God, the anger of God. Sometimes when we talk about the atonement, which is just a nerdy way of talking of how we are at one with God, the, all the stuff that happens at that first Easter, when we talk about that, we sometimes make it out to be quite almost um, impersonal, like paying a fine for when you haven't returned a book on time to a library. But the way that it's pictured in the Bible is very personal, that our sins hurt God. And God is angry at us. It's a personal thing, which means that at the cross, Jesus actually took upon himself. He didn't just pay the fine. He actually took the anger of God. God was angry at him. And so that robe of vengeance, that cloak of passion was all poured out there at the cross. But what that means is that when we put on the whole armor of God, those bits are not needed because they've already been dealt with. The victory's been won. And so now we put on the protective uh, armour of God and just those bits, which is wonderful. Question two, related to the one before. Were the devil and evil created by God? And if so, why? Well, it's a slightly trick question, so thank you for that. Everything is created by God except God himself, of course. God has always existed. When I tell that to my year three and four kids in the primary school, they're kind of like, hang on, how, how can that be true? Well, who, well, someone must have created God. Well, no, no, God's already existed. I said, well, okay, let's say that someone did create God. And we call him the, the, the blue monster. Okay, so the blue monster created God. Who created the blue monster? Uh, the green frog maybe created and then where are we going to stop why don't we just stop with what the Bible says that God always existed right yeah okay yeah can we play another game Uh, God has always existed 
And he has created everything except himself. So in that sense, I'm snookered, the devil and evil were created by God, but they weren't created evil. Uh, What happens, it seems, is that the devil was a fallen angel who was created good, but who chose evil. He was given the choice. Do you want to follow God, who is awesome and good, and just fall into line under him? And the devil said, nah, look, I might try a plan B. I might be God. I reckon that might work. It didn't. And he... Took um, that, and, and, and that's where evil came from, a choice to follow God or not. And he thought, well, I'm going to drag others down as well. So in the first three chapters of the Bible, it's just dense with important stuff that un- helps us understand life and everything. We see there in the third chapter of Genesis that, that Satan said to the humans, hey, why don't you follow me? Don't trust God. I can do better than that for you. And they said, you sure? And they grabbed the apple and duh. And now evil is in the world. And so in that sense... The devil and evil were created because they haven't always existed, but God has given them the option to choose him or not, and they chose badly, and so evil came into the world. But, interestingly in all of this, the cross of Christ is not God's plan B. It's not like, whoops, they took the apple, didn't see that coming. It's like he always intended for Good Friday. Before he even created the universe, he had in mind that Good Friday was going to be the goodest day of all. And that in that day, God would be glorified. So get your head around that. Three to come. What does the Bible say about baptism? I think I'm supposed to answer this fairly briefly. I'll do my best. Uh, Baptism is a special washing of water that is a sign of God's washing away of our sin. And all of this comes from the death of Jesus and his resurrection. Throughout the New Testament, we're told, baptise, get baptised. In Matthew's Gospel, right at the end, Jesus is about to ascend into heaven and he says, go make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we see that pattern continuing over and over again throughout the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. And when someone became a follower of Jesus, or when their household became a follower of Jesus, then they would be baptised to show what God has done for them in the cross of Christ. And so baptism itself doesn't save someone from their sins. You can go through life and never be baptised and still be saved. That's fine. Because it's only by believing in Jesus as Lord that you will be saved, whether you're baptised or not. But what baptism does signify, in a really nice way, I mean, Jesus came up with it, is that you are part of the household of God, that you're part of the church of Christ. It's a powerful way of showing that. And in fact, that's one of the reasons that the big stone thing there, the font, someone smarter than me told me this, is actually at the entrance to the church and not up here. There you go, fun fact. It's kind of like it's it's in the hub of the church and it's at the opening of the church. The point is that that baptism is a wonderful way to to signify a person's part of the household of God. And it was something that happened to not only to adults, but also to children. So when a person is able to answer for themselves, they can say, I believe in Jesus and then be baptised and have that membership of the church shown through that baptism. But when a person's not yet able to answer for themselves, such as the baby of a, of a Christian parent or parents, they can still be baptised because it's about showing what God has done for them. It's about God. It's not about them. It's a sign from God. But it doesn't work without faith. And so you either say it when you're older or, you, or you, you, it's said for you when you were younger. 
But it's ultimately only when a person has faith in Jesus that they will be saved. In both cases, baptism is a sign of God's kindness and grace. And it shows how people are saved if they put their trust in Jesus. Related to that, I've kind of answered it already. Who should be baptised and at what age? If you're a follower of Jesus, you should be baptised. It's a really, really good thing to do. Jesus says, get baptised, so do it. Uh, If you have a child in your family who's too young to demonstrate their faith in Jesus, uh, I think it's a great thing for you to baptise them so that they can be known as a child who is a member of a Christian family with the anticipation that, and we pray, as they get older, they might put their trust in Jesus themselves. Now, not all Christians believe that babies should be baptised. Our Anglican church and a number of other churches have it as a core part of what we do. Um, Other churches say, no, it's something you do when you are old enough to answer for yourself. Uh, There are good arguments for both positions. And I don't want us to be a church that's divided, you know, which side are you going to sit on and all this sort of stuff? Because baptism is a beautiful thing, not something to be argued about. But uh, given that we're in an Anglican church and I really like the idea and I think it's taught in the Bible, I'd love to encourage us all to be baptised if you're a follower of Jesus, including our kids. And I think one of the reasons that the New Testament sees uh, that baptism is something for kids is because we see households, whole households are baptised. And we see a connection between the circumcision of little baby boys in the Old Covenant with the baptism in the New Covenant. And I think there's a connection there that we're supposed to see the dots joined in Colossians chapter 2. Likewise, in 1 Corinthians 7, there's a discussion about whether kids of an unbelieving parent, one unbelieving parent, are still considered to be holy. They don't use the baptism word there, but I think that makes sense in the context of having households baptised. One of the main reasons that Mandy and I baptised our four kids when they were just babies is we wanted to receive this wonderful sign from God that declares to the church that our children are Christians because they're born to Christian parents. And so we've always spoken of our kids as Christians, even before they could walk or talk. And we have prayed that some time would happen in their life when they would come to Jesus and say, I personally trust in you. So that from that point onwards, they might be truly saved. So we haven't prayed that our kids would grow up to become Christians. We've actually prayed that when they grow up, they would trust in Jesus as their parents do. And that they would take that faith on for themselves. But there's another thing. When you're in a church that encourages infant baptism, you're also a church that should do confirmations, as our church does. And when I say our church, we haven't done one for yonks. And I'm hoping next year we will, because a confirmation service is a time when the bishop comes along and he confirms people as adults in what was said of them, for them, when they were children. And uh, that, I think, will be a great thing for us to do, God willing, next year. And finally, what does a person need to do to get baptised in a church? Come and talk to me. I'd love to chat to you. If you are a follower of Jesus and you've not been baptised, let's do it. Uh, If you've got young kids and they've not been baptised, I'd love to encourage you to think about baptising them as well. But if you don't, that's totally fine. It's up to you. But where do we do it and when? I love doing it as part of the church service because it takes a church to baptise a person. Uh, Although there are other ways as well, like uh, in big, large areas of water, like rivers and beaches, I've done them too. 
listening to Jim and Ruth and Glamour Church.